1: Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Delighted to welcome to the show a man who had an incredibly successful career as a jockey. Indeed, he broke a record straight out of the blocks when still a teenager, 91 winners, as a conditional jockey became one of the first established stable jockeys to Paul Nichols for whom he rode multiple grade one winners including his first Cheltenham Festival winner and now has embarked on an even more stellar career as part of the all-conquering Tizard training team he is of course Joe Tizard good morning hi Nick and fresh from from Ascot yesterday an unusually quiet Saturday for you
2: yeah it was four runners yesterday um just the one at Ascot so it's an easy day for me, really. Dad, Dad was down at Taunton. But if
1: you'd said 15 years ago, oh, just a quiet Saturday for the Colin Tizard team with only only four runners, <laughs> three of them at it, the people would have said, what? That's, that's a, uh, you know. And if you'd said the Tizard's joined the roster of Cheebly Park trainers, people might have been equally surprised. It's amazing how, it's, how it snowballed.
2: Yeah, it is. It's, um, uh, at home, we didn't really... we haven't really noticed it, you know. It just gradually got bigger and bigger and then... Um, it's only when you sort of like sit back now and you look and think, blimey, that's, um, I can't remember how it used to be. To be honest, you know, there was back when there was sort of twenty horses in. Felt busy then. was even more so now. And,
1: and it, when you talk to you and, and, and your father, it seems as though it's just grown organically and grown organically. Was there ever a big plan, a grand plan, to turn it into the sort of juggernaut that it is now?
2: Um, not necessarily a grand plan, but dad, dad always liked the idea of, of training horses. You know, even when. Even when we were point to pointing, um, dad, dad enjoyed doing that. We were dairy farmers, but but dad enjoyed enjoyed having having horses about, and, and you know, thinking that he was a, it was a trainer certainly. And then the sort of like the the first big step for us was when I turned professional. Dad did one season with point to pointers, trying to find jockeys that he didn't know. He was he was doing it for for me as his son to to ride for him as a family thing, and um, he didn't have a lot of fun in that. So so he got a permit out, and then. Um, and then horses that we were beating in point-to-point fields or, or were beating ours, they were like, well, if he can win under rules and, and have a bit more, mine could win under rules. And, and then, then, then the permit turned into a full licence, and then it just gradually stepped up.
1: Because, of course, in the early days, I suppose, of, of your dad's career with a licence, you were otherwise engaged, and you were otherwise engaged on one of the most Im- important jobs in the sport. When you, when you look back on your early career as a jockey now, how do you, how do you look back on it?
2: Um, well, I'm very proud of it, but like the, the first season, we're talking about the when I was champion conditional, I was kind of oblivious to what was going on, to be perfectly honest. I'd, I'd gone into this role from a 16-year-old, it, I, went, I went to Paul Nichols when I was 16 years old, I used to go there on my moped, and then amateur, turned professional. I remember driving back from Fontwell and Paul was saying, I think you should turn professional. I went home to mum and dad and was like, Paul wants me to per- turn professional. That was like a huge step but then I turned professional within the first month I had seven winners next thing I'm I've ridden 91 winners in a season <laughs> and and honestly did just it was I was kind of oblivious so I just got on these horses that jump for fun they were the best horses in the race and I just steered them round and and they won and, that, and that's how it was I think um, I think the longest period I went was like 14 15 rides through the whole season without having a winner and it um, you know, that was three or four days. It was just, just point and go, and his horses were flying. And um, but I can't, I can't say that I really knew knew what what I was doing. I was just, I was just this jockey in this whirlwind, and loved every second of it, and just steered these brilliant horses around.
1: And were you appreciating it at the time, or did you not really appreciate it? At the time? I,
2: I think I, like you do, but but then, then you have a couple of lights. Like, so when I was perhaps mid twenties or. Um, then, then you realise what was going on then, and you, you kind of, I kind of wish I had the chance again because, because you're a lot more streetwise and, and you know what's what more. And you were so young as well.
1: And when you get a job with that much pressure, and those bigger owners started coming into the yard, that must have been quite, quite tough.
2: Yeah, the first season it, it wasn't the case because it was because it was all good. The second season was, um, was harder because. The horses weren 't in quite so good good form and and then then you get a f- not fingers pointing as that's that's wrong, but then you know Paul was growing as well at the same time, and he was attracting these big owners who who wanted Adrian Maguire say or Paul Carberry and people like that that was who i was who I was competing against and um and once one goes then then a couple more go and um it was kind of the second season was a bit more of a, more of a wake up call and welcome to. We're no longer just having a jolly. This is this is a proper business. But you did ride uh, Paul Nichols's first ever Cheltenham Festival winner. Yeah, Flagship of Yeah. Yeah.
1: And uh, what a horse he was! And um, went to three different trainers in the end, and, and won a stack of Grade Ones for all of them. But when you were on him, he really was at his, his absolute pomp as a as a younger horse. Um, talk me through that day at, at Cheltenham when he won the Arkle.
2: Well, I can still remember. Um Going down to the first three in the Arkle, and it was the quickest I'd ever been. i I'd, I'd been riding in in all the big races all season, but that was the quickest I'd been down to, down to a fence. And and you know we went at a right gallop. But he was um those good horses have the ability to pee. I think he actually lost a lost a gear as he got older because in, when he won his Queen Mother, he was you know he, he outstayed them really. But when he won the Arkle, he had a gear and um you know and he had lots of scope. So so everything was spot on or longer and. He was just able to take you, take you through a race, and um, you know he got a bit tight to the second last. But other than that, it was it was straightforward. It was it was it he was, he was, he, he was expected to win, and he was he sure he did it in in really good style. And it was an interesting challenge festival for you because although you had that winner, the
1: Gold Cup was a different story because you were on Double Thriller, who was the favourite, mm-hmm. and yet the stable companion Seymour Business was the winner at, at sixteen to one. How did that? How did that feel?
2: Um. You definitely think about oh, did did I didn't I didn't really have the have the choice as such because I'd done so well on Double Thriller leading up to it that that he was sort of my ride and in Seymour business hadn't um, wasn't having a great year until until they sort of introduced the the blinkers, but um so it it was obviously disappointing to miss out on a on a Gold Cup winner but it wasn't it wasn't really the option that Joe you make the decision which one you're going to ride because it was kind of the way the Seymour had been running and the way Double Thriller and I'd won big race on him, it was just that was that was the one I was always gonna ride, you see, so so it's one that got away. It wasn't a Ruby walsh Quarto Denman choice. No, no, it wasn't anything like that, you know, it was it was Double Thriller was was a horse I was gonna ride from for some time leading up to it. And um you know, he ran he ran really well finishing fourth.
1: And it's amazing you you, you gauge how successful and how influential somebody's been by how many people you talk to whose lives have intertwined with them, and it's, you're probably the tenth person who sat in that chair who's had sort of a major involvement with Paul Nichols. And everybody talks quite interestingly about him and what it was like in those days and this machine moving forwards. Just, just give me a flavour of the of the atmosphere at Ditcher in the sort of late 90s, early 90s. It was um,
2: it was it was incredible. I went there as a 16 year old, and I just happened to knock on the kitchen door and and instead of going into like this the staff room so, so i got invited into the kitchen and um three days a week i would i would go and help put the haze around with, with clifford had just Clifford baker just started the same literally a week before me and um and so i was part of the part of the kitchen which was clifford and paul and bridget and um ross stark was the assistant at the time so i was involved in in all of it i went racing with paul all the time and um, he was so enthusiastic and, and, and driven it, it was unbelievable, I was part of that snowball, I remember we um, Robert Ogden had, or Barry Simpson had phoned me up to to ride one of his horses at Perth in an amateur race and Paul flew up with me, he didn't have any runners but he flew up with me because he knew that that was going to get him a chance to meet Barry Simpson <laughs> and um, <laughs> so he came up to Perth with me just to to get that, so that's um, that's how it was and you know the horses were, the horses were arriving um, that week at Cheltenham when he had his first first festival win and, and the three cool equiname as well and, yeah. um, and Seymour you know he was he was absolutely popping Then that was you can, well you can imagine you what know, it's like he still is driven now but he um he, he was loving it at that stage.
1: It must have been a, an incredibly high octane intense atmosphere
2: yeah it was it was it was full on um, you know I was still there when when he was going for his first championship in Got to the last week when he was when he was up against Martin Pipe and um, you know there was a lot he was he was sending horses here here there and everywhere um, and he wasn't he wasn't quite capable of sealing it and you know and we went up to Banger and um, ran a horse in a novice chase and and he fell and and Paul walked walked, the tr- walked off on his own around around the track you know he's, he was that he wanted it that much and it, it wasn't quite happening but. um it, it was it was intense, but I was part of it. He, him him and Bridget were like um, like second family to me, nearly. You know, taking me on, teaching me about racing, taking me on trips everywhere, and um, it was just a great ride to go along with.
0: Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti Basti
1: Dubai. Uh, I'm delighted to say that joining me and joining Joe Tizard, Maddie Playle is back from the Racing Post and trainer Ben Pauling. Welcome to you both. Happy Morning. Sunday. Morning. And looking all smiles. How have you been, Maddie? Long time since you've been on the show. Yeah, I've yeah, been
3: a couple of times now. So uh, looking me, yeah, all well. Thank you.
1: Good. And how's it going at the Racing Post? You're doing more digital stuff now.
3: Yeah, very much so. Um, driving the ship a little bit more, which is nice, but still enjoying it and uh, having a great time. Yeah?
1: Back any winners yesterday?
3: Couple. Couple
1: and enjoy the Clarence House?
3: Very much so. Um, It was one of those days for me where I was sort of itching to get to work which I think a lot of people probably wouldn't be able to say that, but when you've got Underso and Daffy Desoy facing off like that, um, I couldn't wait and I think it delivered.
1: You were itching to get to work yesterday. Joe Tuzan itches to get to work every day. Ben, things are going well now?
4: Yeah, they're back on track and um, what a relief it is.
1: Uh, yeah, you were you were sort of beating yourself up a little bit before before Christmas. Have you taken think, the hair shirt off now? I
4: think beating yourself up is a bit of an over exaggeration. I hope I wasn't literally self-harming. <laughs> but um no, I it was it was just um you look back at it now and it it really was a bit of a tough time, but it luckily for us it didn't last all that long. Um and because it was quite hard to find out exactly what it was, and we still don't 100% know, you never quite know the duration you're going to be in. And I think that's more the the worry for a trainer, the, the sort of not knowing of, of how long you're going to be where you are and, and whatever you you can... You try not to change too much, because if you change too much, you haven't got a clue what worked and, and what didn't. So, yeah, it's been a tricky start to the season, but it's it's turned the corner now, hopefully, and onwards and upwards
1: let's get right out on the front foot with the positive with your darling who won a bumper at Newbury the other day in the manner of a very very good horse and you weren't exactly backwards in coming forwards afterwards either
4: no um, he he came um, from uh, uh, the Costelos, John Costello in Ireland who uh, we've had a lot of luck with and, and Hen Knight as well um, obviously she's had some very good horses from them and when you get a horse like this, he'd never set foot on a point-to-point course, let alone a race course. And his work was very good, uh, and he's a very straightforward character that just does his job. So it was nice to go and see him on, do it on the course. It's quite interesting to me, because as you say, he'd had no
1: experience. He'd never been to a public auction. Mm. He was with a great nursery, don't get yeah. me wrong. But how could Henrietta Knight be so sure that this was the best horse she'd bought since Best Mate, when he was almost untried? Is it just the eye? Um,
4: yeah, I think a lot of I think we all respect the where he's come from. Yeah. And they had a very um positive view of him. Uh Hen then had him in the interim. Um she did a lot of flat work with him, um and sort of brought him on to his early stages and then and then sent him on to me uh back in August, I think, maybe even September. Um and right from the word go, it's just some horses just seem to move a little bit easier than others, and 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 find it easy. And everything he everything he's done, even when he was doing you know flat work with Hen, you know he could have quite easily gone into eventing. You know he's got he's he's just one of those horses that's got it all, mm. uh, and he's got a very easy way of going, and 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 that excites people. It's what we're looking for. So what will he do now? He won't run at the festival, um, and he will probably go to Aintree, I should think whether we pop him in another race before then just to keep a lid on him because he, he was as fresh as paint the day after Newbury. I don't know. That's to be decided. But um, it's a big team effort, and, you know, it's fabulous for Lord and Lady Vesty to have such a lovely horse again. Why, um, why are you not going to Cheltenham with him? It's a race that I don't particularly like. Um, having come through Nicky's ranks, you know, it sort of drummed into me that it was quite a rough race you know on the, other, on the other literally sat next to me is Joe Tizard who, who as we just talked about won it with cue card and it was a very you know good race for him but I think a lot of horses have a hard race there um, it's Cheltenham to me is the ultimate but because it's up and down and it's always on the collar and always turning it's hard for a horse to get into a rhythm unless they travel really well and I think it's probably a, a year that he could he could do with avoiding it and then hopefully we might be there in time to come
1: You ran a nice novice hurdler on the same day at Newbury, shaken up Harry, Mm. who had the misfortune to run into another good Henderson horse. This time it was Shishkin. You can probably give us an idea of how good you think the winner is because you know exactly how good your horse is.
4: I think the winner looks bloody good because, you know, just quicken on that ground how he did. You've got to be a very good horse. I thought coming to two out, or where the wings of two out, I thought we had him. Um, And then Nico's given a shake of the reins and off he's gone. Obviously, the, um, the winning distance has been accentuated because I think Daryl's thought once, once, once he's gone, he's gone. But um, no, our lad is very nice, um, but he, he's definitely going to be a better horse when we step him up in trip.
1: Yeah, Ruby Walsh was super impressed with Shishkin the other day when we had him on uh, the road to Cheltenham. Maddie, how impressed were you?
3: Very, very impressed. I must admit, when you first saw the sort of jump the last, you thought maybe Ben's horse was going to stay on, but the way he quickened in such testing, tacky ground, you don't often see that, and he really ran through the line. so um, exciting to see him next.
1: If he was yours, which race would you go for?
3: Supreme, I think. Yeah,
1: that much speed. I'd be inclined to keep him at two miles, wouldn't you, Joe?
3: Yeah,
2: I think so. He stays as well. You've got to stay in the Supreme. You need to be able to travel and then, and then, then stay as well. I shouldn't imagine i will step them up until they have to.
1: And while we're on the novice hurdles theme, you've got this insane pack of novice hurdlers that you need to start separating and putting in different slots. Are you any closer to figuring out who's no, going I where?
2: Need, I don't need to make that decision quite yet. Um, you know, if I'd if i if I'd imagine now that Fiddler on the Roof and Master Debonair end up in the Supreme, um, big breakaway, two and a half. So just try, but we're going to keep them apart for... a a little bit longer, I just hope they all get there in one piece. You know, this is the next six or seven weeks is um, is when it can can go wrong. You know, they're they're all going to have a prep run as well, so hopefully they'll get there in one piece and they'll decide for us. Hopefully,
1: is this is this the big breakaway? Is, is he the is he the real one? Is he is he the best?
2: Um, yeah, he looks he looks he looks a bit special. Funny, Ben and I were talking about it beforehand. You know, he he saw him at the sales in Punchestown last year as well, and. It was like 26 lots and he was a complete standout um and then everything he's done at home has been for a for a big raw four-year-old um that it, had been exceptional so um you know he's 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 still got to keep going but at the moment he, he's ticking all the boxes that's for certain you just
1: watching him move and gallop he just looks something, yeah. a, bit, his something a bit we, of, haven't, we haven't even had to clip him
2: this year you know his coat's his coat's incredible and, you know, we, don't, we haven't had to put a set of clippers on. I think he's the only one in the yard that hasn't been clipped. He's just, um, he's just got a bit of something about cool. him. And yeah. I, I,
1: can't, I can't move on with the rest of the programme, Maddie Plale, without asking Joe about this or crack. Because <laughs> for whatever reason, I, I, and I know he's a great horse and I know we all love him, but you have a kind of deep deep, visceral passion for this horse. I
3: think, yeah, it's quite funny how people have sort of have me synonymous with the horse. No, it's just when I was getting into racing properly and I was sort of finishing school and I had that sort of freedom, he was the real star that came along and I sort of nailed my colours to his mast. So, i followed him throughout and, uh, yeah, I mean, what's not to like? He's a superstar, isn't he?
1: So, the only... Difficulty is that he hasn't been all that sound the last few seasons, and you're having issues with him now getting him back So what's the what's the prognosis do you think?
2: Well, he, we thought it was a foot absence um, before the before the King George It's turned out to that, that he still hasn't quite come saying as a bit more than that, you know Dad suggests that you can walk him out and he's saying as a pound, but when you try him, he's just slightly lame um, We don't want to write him off just yet because mm. like, we haven't made an entry at Cheltenham. He's, he's not going to make that but there is a chance he he can come right, so we're just we're just sort of taking it step by step and giving him every chance, and um, and he'll tell us whether he's whether he's got another race in him or or we have to make a decision. But what we don't want to do is write him off now, and um, and that's it. But he's he's been a phenomenal horse for us through the years, and but he's always been fragile. You know, when he was a young horse, he was he was kind of too powerful for his body. Then he was sound for two or three years in the middle, and now he's his age is sort of. Kicking him, but, you know, on his day, he was, he was a serious racehorse. And, you know, he used to eat our gallop. That's the only way to describe it up the hill. he just... And the way he did in, when he won the World Hurdle, you know, he's got that, that sort of stride that he just grabbed the ground. He's um, he'd been a special chap. And hopefully... You know, his last run was... What was he beaten, Four lengths behind Paisley Park. So, you know, he's still, still got an awful lot of ability.
1: Do you remember when you had Thistlecrack, Native River, and Q Card all at one stage, looking like they were going to end up in the same Gold Cup? And I'm sure, I'm sure, your dad said Thistlecrack would come out the best of the three, it, with his tongue in his cheek a little bit. And everyone went, "Yeah,
2: yeah." Well, that was, but he meant it. He didn't did he? mean it. Yeah, yeah. He was. Um, well, that that year when that was when he won the um, won the King George's novice and. Yeah, he was he was good then. He was really good then, and, and that sort of eighteen month period, where um, where he's, he's pretty untouchable, to be honest. And and if he'd have stayed in one piece, then it's easy to say, isn't it? They've got they've got a they've got to stay in one piece, and they they need to get there. Do you think Atip River could win
1: the Gold Cup again?
2: Yeah, I don't see why he couldn't. He's definitely back. um his goal cut that took a took a lot out of him and, and and might bite as well and and he just never really sparkled um last season but but he's back very good at home again and um i know the race fell apart a little bit it it ain't true but have you, you know blinkers on yeah i think so i think he just he's been to he's been to war a few times you mm. know and it just it just helps him push it very yet he had cheek pieces as a novice, and i think the the blinkers just took him. Just needs him. He's an older chap, but he had a bit of soft ground. He's, he's certainly um, not. Shouldn't be forgotten anyway.
0: Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Al Basti Dubai.
1: Well, there are zero doubts about Native Rivers Cheltenham target. There is bizarrely enough still a scintilla of doubt about which race. Deffy De Soy will run in at the Cheltenham Festival, even though he's won the Tingle Creek chase and the Clarence House chase, both impressively yesterday at Ascot. He was great in beating Underso, who you could arguably say might have just come back a little bit from the Tingle Creek, and the proximity of Maracuja in third is a mild concern. But, Maddie, Deffy De Soy looked most mm-hmm. assured, didn't he?
3: He did. Uh, I think, as regards a champion chase prep go, it's pretty bonkers that they'd go anywhere else at this stage. A lot of people are sort of stirring the pot, saying Marikudu was very, very close by. But as you say, under so maybe he didn't go that fast. So if they quickened, that sort of explains why he's in such close proximity. And I just thought it was magical to watch. As I say, I build it in the morning as this fantastic jewel. And I do think it delivered to an extent. Um, why, why would you change it? Why would you go to the Ryanair? I think he, he's proved in Britain he's just absolutely superb.
1: I think the Mullins camp felt that the more rain that fell, the more it would be in under So's favour. But Deffy just has shown he can handle testing conditions, and he's the horse on the up, Ben. And it's very hard when you've got a horse on the up and in form for the old boy to get the better of them.
4: Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I was more impressed with Deffy yesterday than I have been probably all season. He just He just looked to me... Have that absolute, outright speed towards the end without even really having to go for him. You know, he jumped two out, and he was very fast and accurate. And suddenly, he was four, or five lengths clear, and again at the last. And he was eased up, obviously. But and Maracuja was given a very good ride. You know, he was dropped in. He wasn't put in the mix. He was there to pick up the pieces, and a very good ride it was too. So you know, he was he was he was, he was allowed. He should have finished with a wet sail if he was on form.
1: A very good ride by a jockey that Dan Skelton's we uh, was singing her praises last week, Bridget yeah. Andrews, on, yeah. on this show. Uh, as far as the the decision is concerned, Maddie, uh, how much do you think the possibility of a back-to-form or right-on-point Altior winning the game spirit and looking deadly again is playing in Philip Hobbs' mind?
3: I think you're getting a bit ahead of yourself there, aren't you? I mean, what, from what we've seen from Altior this season, it's not been anything really to be that afraid of. We know obviously what he's capable of and what an outstanding horse he is, but we have got to see him back to his best. Um, if I was Philip Hobbs, I wouldn't be scared at all. He's got a real classy electric jumper on his hands who you know, performs very, very well around Cheltenham. Um, so I think he should, he'll probably just be focusing on getting Deffy to Cheltenham in the best shape he can.
1: I can see, you, you, there's a smile playing on
4: your lips, and I'm trying to work out, to work out what's in there. I just, that uh, Altior, I mean, let's be honest, um, has got beaten by surname, no, no disaster, around a track that suits surname. When they stepped up on ground, he wouldn't have liked. Nicky got Sprinter Sacra back to win a cha- champion chase, and I think he was a lot more in the darkness than Altior yeah. is right now. Um, Nicky's a master at bringing them back, and we're not seeing him because he's probably not quite right to do himself justice. But that's what I'm getting at. I, uh, I, I would be, I would be, firmly in Philip's camp in the fact that I, if, if Philip is concerned about Altior returning at his best, well, so would I be. Because even, even within eight, ten pounds of his absolute best, he's going to give Defy the Soy a ding dong. You know, he's a proper horse, and he didn't go 19 races unbeaten for. A, for any reason other than he was exceptional,
1: there is also the point as to whether you believe that the Ryanair Chase holds equivalent <coughs> prestige as the Champion Chase, and I, I suspect now for quite a few people it it does. I mean, for me it doesn't, but
2: for a lot of people it does. Yeah, I think it does. I think it is, uh, I, I think that definitely will probably end up running in the, in the Champion Chase myself. I don't. I was mm. um, oh, the obvious choice, yeah, isn't it? But um, but but the same thing is if it certainly we cannot write Altior off yet I mean no, he's, he's, I don't think he's been written off just because he got beat you know I think that was a hell of a run and yeah. I'm sure mm. I'm sure he'll bounce bounce straight straight back but um Cheltenham Festival winners are Cheltenham Festival winners mm. and if he if he thinks he if he thinks he can't beat Altior then then he'll go right now but I don't think that happened I think I think they'll both turn up in the in the champion chase and uh, and and I, I hope it does happen because it'll be um what a great, race yeah.
1: what a race yeah. That'd be quite something, and if yeah, let's well, let's hope, let's hope they both end up in the same race. I think for the sport's sake, um, it would be it would be fantastic. Let's have a look back at some of the racing that took place at Haydock yesterday and we will start, if we can, with Vintage Clouds winning the Peter Marsh chase again for the Smiths, who've got such mm-hmm. a great record in races like this, and Danny Cook, the man doing the steering. Well, this well, We thought we knew everything we, we needed to know
4: about this horse, but he, he was very, very good yesterday, Ben, wasn't he? He was. Um, he's obviously a lovely, old-fashioned chasing type, and he just, Haydock does suit these horses that just get into a rhythm, and he, he, he makes his own running, and jumps from fence to fence and you know it, it, was, a, it was a very emphatic and impressive performance um, and a g- good seeing see him bounce back obviously after obviously not loving the national fences so it's great. I actually used to train Red Indian that there's uh, chasing him home um, for Johnny Weatherby um, and Johnny moved all his horses back home um, to tra- be trained from home and Kelly's done a brilliant job with him but this Red Indian loves loves that sort of ground, so no, I'm, I think he'd have been good.
1: Well, it was a great
4: performance. One thing that hasn't
1: been particularly lucky for Vintage Clouds is the Grand National thus far. Maddie, do you see him as a, a horse who could, who could yet ha- have a say at Aintree?
3: Not really, and I think it's key that the connections have said that they're not going to go that way. Um, This horse again he's proving what a specialist track Haydock is, I think he's had 11 starts at the track, he's won three of them, been second in five of them, and third in two of them, the only other occasion he fell, so he clearly does particularly well at the track, Um, he's probably going to go for races like the Ultima, um, Scottish Grand National, so I think they suit him well and he's bound to be there and thereabouts if, um, if he can continue in this form.
1: Excellent performance, what's not to like about him?
2: No, he's like, like, like an old-fashioned type of horse, and he gallops, mm. jumps. Um, very impressive yesterday. So that was Vintage Clouds winning the Peter Marsh. Good luck wherever he
1: should go next. But the real story of the day at Haydock Park was the riding of Sam Twist and Davis, who pulled two races out of the fire. It was quite remarkable to watch, and it was very touching to hear his father, Nigel, pay tribute to him and, and Sam to Nigel. We'll we'll start with the new one, Hurdle. This was the second of the two. This is Ballyandy taking it off Pentland Hills. Now, there's plenty to talk about here. Plenty to talk about here. Um, Maddy, first of all, your your thoughts overall on the race, the strength of the race and its validity as a champion hurdle trial.
3: Yeah, the champion hurdle market obviously looks pretty open at this stage. We've seen Ballyandy contesting other trials. He was third in the Christmas hurdle. A lot of people going into this obviously expected Pentman Hills to step forward on what he showed in the International, where he travelled very well um, and just seemed to blow up after the last. He appeared to do that again here. But Ballyandy, champion bumper winner, Betfair Hurdle winner, he was third in the Coral Cup last year. That's the beauty of Nigel Twiston-Davis and indeed Sam when he's riding is they race their horses, they don't run afraid of anyone they tend to pick up a lot of prize money and it was it was good to see them rewarded but uh, i suspect a lot of people will be talking about Penton hills
1: well, we'll separate this into two segments, and we'll come to Penland Hills in a moment. Should he, could he have won, what sort of horse is he, has he got a chance in the champion hurdle? But let's first, and I think this is the right way round of doing it, pay tribute not only to the horse, Ballyandy, who's been revitalized this season, but also to the ride he was given by Sam Twiston-Davis. Father Nigel is on the line now. Nigel, when we ring you on a Sunday morning, it means you've had a good day, and a good day it was. Well done. Yeah, we had
5: a wonderful day yesterday. i yeah, very, very happy. Um... It's lucky when things go our way, and
1: it certainly And you made the point yesterday, you said, hey, it helps when you got the best jockey riding for you, which, yes, you can say because you're, you're Sam's father, but knowing you as I know you, you wouldn't have said it if you didn't mean it. No, he, he,
5: he, he, he's somewhere. he never gives up. Uh, nothing the same as the horses, don't give up, and, uh, and you know, he uh, got on that, so that was
1: great. Let's talk about Ballyandy. He's revitalised this season, you've placed him well, and he's really responding for it. What's been the secret to a slight revival?
5: Well, that is it. I probably haven't placed him well because we were looking at the three-miners and things like that. And uh, he disappointed badly. And, and, and then he's all along. He's a strong place two-miner.
1: So, essentially, he's placed himself, is what you're saying. So you've almost by accident come back for, for the for the sort of champion hurdle trial-type races and he's done so well that... It it makes you makes your season for you
5: very much. So the um, the, he disappointed at Weatherby when we thought he you know win the uh, three mile. Um, There's no race for him. He's top of the handicaps. There's no race for him. So we thought, oh well, let's have a go at the international hurdle. Well, you could say he should have won that. Um, He was very unlucky in running. A horse came across him, and he had to go reroute round it. Um, uh, You know, he's obviously. I'm not saying he's champion hurdle um, winner. He, he he could
1: easily be a champion hurdle placed, and and that would give everyone obviously a huge amount of satisfaction. He's been a horse. He's had a fantastic career for you. Uh, given how he's thriving on his racing, can you get another run into him between now and the the champion hurdle? Nick some more of this valuable prize money in this rather threadbare two mile division. You know, it's very tempting to have a look at Wing Canton, but yeah. he, he's had, but we won't. He's had
5: three hard races close together. Um, to give him his best chance in the Champion Hurdle. Um, let, let, let's let's hang on till Cheltenham. You know, he, he, he could improve on on yesterday's run, you know, not having had um, hard races so close. Um, so that that would be the idea. Go to the Champion Hurdle, then we can always go up two sides at um, Aintree.
1: At Aintree and then Punchdown and goodness knows what else. So stolen Silver in, in what looks a warm novice hurdle. Form looks very strong, Edward Stone and the Banner King Revel. Now, has stolen, do, you, do you think differently now about Stolen Silver or is that exactly what you'd anticipated?
5: Well, it's what we very much hope. Um he's, he, he's very green, he hasn't run a lot at all. Um, he, he doesn't give himself much of a chance in his races. Uh, he, he'll improve for every run. I mean, hopefully he'll jump better next time. Um and the next time could easily be the Betfair hurdle. Um he'll have a penalty for that, but not a lot. Um he he's uh, he, he could easily go well there.
1: Okay, well that's uh, that's pretty exciting, uh to, to think of him as a, a Betfair hurdle horse and then and then on to on to the Supreme, I guess.
5: Absolutely, you know, he's following Ballyandy's footsteps. Um, um won the uh, that's fair. Uh, as we won it without answering, uh, these season competitors they do seem to have a little bit of a, um, you know, a little bit of a chance in these big
1: handicaps. And you had winners all over the shop, winners at Ascot as well. And I can't let you go without asking about uh, Jamie Neals, who won for you at, at Ascot. At Son of John, and only been riding four years, and a winner at Ascot in the amateur riders race. That's quite that's quite some achievement. A the head of an
5: achievement, yes, well done him. Um, you know, we we went there with, with just hopes for a time kind of and round. Um, but, but that was a, a very good ride, very cool. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're looking forward to um, great things. And what I'm hoping is if he doesn't turn professional, which he was threatening to, and, and so we can run him in the community or check.
1: Yeah, well, I'm, that, I, that's got to be incentive at least to hang on to the, the amateur licence for another six weeks or so. That's
5: what we're hoping he'll do, yes.
0: Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Basti
1: Cruel Dubai. So i like to say my next guest has extensive experience in the racing and gambling sectors at the very highest level. For eight years, from to 2000, 2008, he was managing director of Coral. For six subsequent years, he was non-executive director of the Gala Coral Group. He has been the boss of carpet rights since 2014 and has also maintained his links with racing as an owner a syndicate member and also a consultant to First Racing for Change and then Great British Racing as a non-executive director. He is Wilf Walsh. Wilf, welcome to Luck on Sunday. Nice to be here. And good to see you. And you were one of about 4,000 people this week who was listed as a potential successor to Nick Rust as Chief Executive of the BHA. Do you fancy it?
0: Um, Include me out, I think (laughs) is the, uh, uh, the best description of that. I was surprised Ben Keith, managed to find time out from taking photos of his dinners in various West End restaurants to make uh, to make a market. But I'll apologise to anybody who took the uh, 22 to 1 publicly now.
1: Is it something in any parallel life that you might have considered?
0: Probably not. I think, you know, when you're a CEO of a business, and you alluded to it earlier, it's about getting having control of that business. So I think the way that you know, people like Bernie Eccleston had control of F1, the way people like Barry Hearn have got control of snooker. It's always worth listening to Simon Bazalgette, who's, uh, who's always been a couple of pounds ahead of the uh, handicapper, and his way out of the jockey club door, he, he said that the, that the problem is with the tripartite agreement, how do you manage the BHA, uh, the horsemen uh, uh, and the RCA, it's a really difficult job and I think ultimately it's about regulation. It's not a, a pure CEO's job in that sense.
1: And it seems to be a job, I know any CEO's job is going to have pressure. Yeah. You don't pay people a lot of money for them not to have any pressure. Mm-hmm. They've got a lot of responsibility. But it strikes me that the BHA chief executive's job is one that has
0: all sorts of attendant stress involved with it and issues that it's almost impossible to resolve. Yeah, I I think that is the case and I I, I think they're going on this you know long search now and I'm I'm sort of minded of the you know hiring recruitment consultants and headhunts are very difficult Talking about the, you know, the FA Premier League job where I think they went through two executive search firms trying to find the new boss of the Premier League. You know, the first choice, she didn't turn up for orientation day. The second choice thought about it and thought, oh, I'm sulking because I'm not the first choice. The third choice had some dodgy texting action that excluded him. And, and the fourth and successful candidate was hiding under the boardroom desk all the time. And existed now. If the BHA chief executive job is about regulation and governance, then there are two or three candidates in that market, Star Sports created, who are perfectly able to do that job. So why go off on a search? The salary is about 300k. Pay a recruitment company 100,000 pound. Hire one of those candidates. Stick hundred grand into the racing welfare bin. Save us all a lot of time and trouble.
1: You make it sound so easy.
0: <laughs> I don't think the job is easy, but I mean, um, you know, reflecting. And, and I think Nick has done, you know, a really good job. And, and will probably be a hard act to follow. But like you say, it is not one of the easiest jobs in sports because you don't have that ultimately mm-hmm. have total control.
1: But the interesting thing is, Nick is front foot leader. He's, he's quite charismatic. He doesn't mind appearing on television. He's yeah, you know, he's quite a personality mm. in that role. Yet you're almost advocating hiring someone who perhaps isn't that sort of front foot personality figurehead style leader.
0: Uh, Look, I mean, one of the challenges with racing is it needs to be more outward looking. So if you're managing the parish, then it's managing, you know, regulation, government uh, relationships, et cetera, et cetera, the sport. I'm more concerned about racing looking outward and therefore, it's about the promotion of racing, and that's really down to the race courses and to, you know, the excellent Rod Street and the Get Along Gang at, uh, at GBR, who who I think need to be funded more aggressively to promote the game. The internal stuff, you know, we agonise about all these issues, you know, on, on your hot list this morning, but we're all converted. Mm. You know, we're all there. We all love the sport. We're talking to each other or on social media arguing with each other, it's about looking outwards. And I think uh, the BHA uh, chief executive job is more about managing the, uh, the internal uh, issues within racing.
1: Because, as you rightly point out, they've got their marketing and promotional arm now called Great British Racing, yeah. started off as Racing for Change in 2009-10. <laughs> you were part of that. Yeah. Uh, when you were involved initially in Racing for Change, there was quite a bit of resistance to
0: that, wasn't there? Well, quite a bit of resistance, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> racing can be funny. I mean, you know, it, it almost looks like a cult of uh, middle-aged white men who don't want anyone else to play. I remember uh, at Racing for Change, we were talked about Champions Day, which, you know, time marches on, 10th year. And we talked about moving uh, Champions Day from Newmarket. Now, you know, Newmarket... Champions Day, there's about 10,000 people going, an east wind cutting across the fens. 40 quid cab ride from Cambridge train station. It didn't take a lot of imaginative thinking to say, well, if you want an end-of-season party to celebrate the best of British racing and breeding, then have it at the best race course in the world near London and get forty thousand people to go. Sounds easy. It wasn't easy, but it you know, with a bit of luck and good weather and Frankel, uh-huh. it's become, I think, a roaring success and it hasn't affected the all important pattern, God forbid. You know? So that, that's the challenge. And and that's actually not innovation. You know, that was just moving, a meeting you talk about things like city racing which i think is a brilliant idea it just immediately there's this pile on from people in in racing the converted who don't want change same as the five day festival sorry to bring it up again but there you go
1: well, you may as well have you <laughs> have your tuppence worth on the five day festival from a commercial standpoint
0: Yeah, get on with it i mean you know a couple of extra races six races a day finish a festival on a on a on a saturday um the, the question is does it grow turnover, because racing, <clears throat> is fortunes are inextricably linked to betting through the levy and through media rights. You can't get away from that. And all the research says when people go on a race course, they want to win money and they want, they want to have a bet. And you're right, people shouldn't demonise uh, betting because it's, it's, so, it's so closely linked. But, you know, I just think that there needs to be a more balanced argument. And, and, and the chairman of Cheltenham is right to commercially consider whether five days will grow the levy and therefore turnover and the return to racing and the commercial benefits to Cheltenham—it's a passing comment—and then the world, you know, swarms on it as though it's uh, as though it's a child murder. It's very odd sometimes.
1: Let's talk about the relationship between horse racing and betting and the symbiosis hmm. therein. And you rightly point out that now, slice of media rights income <laughs> has slightly lessened mm-hmm. the absolute importance of yep. the levy. But still, racing depends on the on the betting pound to a huge, huge extent. What can racing do to promote responsible gambling, but to not just simply jump on the bandwagon and say we don't really want anything to do with people having a bet?
0: Well, it's um, it's not it's it's not easy, is it? I mean, I, I think what bookmaking has done over the past week has done something truly incredible, which is to unite the Guardian and the Daily Mail on one issue which is unheard of. And so the headlines make for very uncomfortable reading. The facts are, and I think it was on your timeline, 0.7% of people polled, 0.7% of people polled across gambling, not just racing or football. This is casinos and bingo and lottery. 0.7% identifies having a problem. Now, that's... a. A small number, a lot of people uh, like a bet. I I love a bet. Um, but, you know, having a bet on a Saturday or a bet on one of your own horses or having a glass of wine on a Saturday or a Friday night doesn't make you an alcoholic, neither does betting having a bet make you a degenerate. And that appears to be you know, the assumption that people reading the papers will make. And I think betting has got to be racing has got to be careful because its fortunes are dependent on growing the turnover. On British betting. That's a fact.
1: Uh, gambling is not inherently bad, surely is the message that has to go out. Same as you said, having a glass of wine is not yeah. inherently bad.
0: Yeah. But I think you know the, the, there is a sort of pile-on on social media from, from, from people into racing who, who sort of misunderstand that relationship. I've just recently given up chairing the betting liaison group and that's uh, you know a levy board initiative uh, and you meet the traders from the betting companies and, and they are all seriously looking at how can they grow turnover on this product that we all love. Mm. How can you do it? And uh, you know, I think it's a very, very dangerous debate that we lost control of. Now, that's not to say um, that 340,000 people with a gambling addiction is not a problem. And, there are, and, and the betting companies have got to step up and spend the right amount of money to manage some of these issues that you know, they are partly responsible for creating. And that includes some of these excessive VIP grooming schemes that have been Exposed recently. I personally am uh, uncomfortable with seeing uh, betting companies on football shirts uh, uh, because this is pandering to a, a Far Eastern audience. These are brands none of us have ever heard of, and we've been betting for nearly 30 years. So there are things that the betting companies could do now before it happens to them to get on the front foot manage the debate uh, more effectively, but racing, and, and it could be in racing's benefit because there may be more money and sponsorship for racing, which will be excluded from some of these watershed ideas that may crop up.
1: So you were MD at Corals from 2000 to 2008, Yeah. Uh, can you put your hand on your heart and say that you were any less exploitative than betting companies are now?
0: No, 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 being honest, you know, you run a private company, whether it's a PLC or a, a private equity led company, it's about profit. How can I maximize the profits in my business? Um, and um, we're, we're all uh, equally culpable, as are the, you know, the chief executives of smoking companies and, 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 and drinking companies. But you know, every time somebody smokes a cigarette, every time somebody smokes a cigarette, they're harming themselves mm. and they're harming people around them. That's not the case uh, for gambling. And, and you know, we always say, if you look at the issues the NHS have got, um, and the NHS has got major funding issues. Um, you know gambling is an auditing error versus you know smoking uh, drugs or or sugar even and I think you know that the racing industry collectively could come together with bookmakers and do a much better job on this in terms of public perception
1: isn't it the case that gambling doesn't cause mental health issues it is mental health issues that mean that people have addiction problems which can be manifest through either gambling, or drinking, or smoking, or narcotics, or whatever else you can become addicted to, and you can become addicted to anything. Isn't, isn't that a reasonable philosophy to advance?
0: It's a reasonable philosophy to advance, no doubt about that, and there, are, there is, regrettably, a small percentage of the population who have a self-destruct button, uh, which is genetic, uh, on whatever it is, um, you know, whether it's gambling, smoking, pornography, whatever it is. What the betting companies and in the industry have got to be careful of is is how they manage that mm. and are they seen to be proactively making that situation worse for a person. So i.e.
1: finding the person who's got a weakness and just going for the weakness. Yeah, I mean and if going you, and to you to exploit yeah. it over and over and over
0: again. Yeah, and I I'm very you know, don't believe everything you read in the paper, but if some of these VIP grooming schemes are, are true, then it it's it's a pretty difficult read. Um You know, when I was running the business, you'd always invite your best customers racing. But there's a difference between, you know, a social day out and actually plugging bonuses into their account to encourage them to to fire up more. And it's a very difficult line. We're all grown-ups. We've all learned how to climb out of trees and not get run over by cars. There is personal responsibility, but we do have to protect that small percentage of people who have a problem. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by our Basti Dubai. You've been listening to
1: the Luck on Sunday podcast, the weekly digest of the best bits from Luck on Sunday, the programme that brings you the best guests and insights from around the racing world.